You're listening to On The Radar, conversations with extraordinary women in science. I'm Julia Gray. This podcast series is brought to you by Anderson Press to celebrate the publication of I, Ada, a novel that explores the tumultuous teenage years of Ada Lovelace. It's available now. This final episode of On The Radar comes to you directly from the Richmond Literature Festival. It gives me enormous pleasure to introduce my last guest on this series, Tamandra Harkness. Tamandra is a writer, a broadcaster, a comedian, and a statistician. Her book, Big Data, Does Size Matter, was published by Bloomsbury in 2016. For BBC Radio 4, she has presented six seasons of Future Proofing, as well as her own five-part series, How to Disagree. Having shifted to online events in the era of COVID, she recently chaired a panel event featuring a cat. Thank you, Tamandra, for joining us today. Well, it's a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. You write and talk about so many things, but big data is often at the heart of your work. What is big data? Uh, well, that's the, that's the big question, isn't it? I guess I started out looking at big data because that that was a big phrase that was going around and I was wondering is it just like lots of data is it just lots of information Uh, or is there something a bit more to it than that and so I asked lots of people who who use it and knew what they were talking about and in the end I decided that there is actually a bit more to it than just having lots of data and so I, I thought how can I pull this into a very memorable compact form if you like and so like any self-respecting author I came up with a backronym uh, I don't know if you're familiar with a backronym it's it's where you want an acronym uh, but you reverse engineer it to end up with the word that you want it to form so obviously in this form data uh, so I broke it down to four things uh, that I think apart from just the size of how much data there is I think are important there's the D for dimension so you pull in different kinds of data from different sources and you put them together to get a multi-dimensional picture of whatever you want Uh, and and the person who summed this up best for me was a brain scientist called Professor Paul Matthews in fact and I said to him he used brain scans I said oh you must be very excited about all the data in brain scans and he said well no he said it's obviously better to have lots of high quality brain scans instead of a few low quality ones but what I get excited about is when you get the brain scans and you put them together with other sources of information like the medical records of the people whose brains they are and the postcodes where they lived and the weather records from those postcodes and you put them all together and then you ask a new question that hadn't been thought of by the people who collect the data. In his case, he wanted to know if the hours of sunshine that those people had got affected the progression of their multiple sclerosis and he said so he, he summed up brilliantly for me he said if you have lots of data that's just large data but when you get the different types and put them together ask a new question that's big data so that's d for dimensions a for collecting it automatically because you know as everybody knows now everything you do digitally which of course these days is quite a lot of things like this uh generates data and then you it's just a matter of can you can you use that for other things? T is for time because you're collecting it generally in real time, so you can project forward and make predictions. And then the last A is for AI, for artificial intelligence, because quite often now the programs that are used to make sense of the data are not 
just simple statistical programs. They are programs that to some extent, I mean, I'm always a bit hesitant to say teach themselves or learn themselves because that makes you think of like the way we learn, where we are constantly thinking about what we're learning and why we're learning it. But but they they do to some extent learn in that you don't give the computer the full length list of instructions of what to do. You just say, what I want you to do is sort these things, for example, into healthy brains and unhealthy brains. And here's a load of healthy brains. Here's a load of unhealthy brains as reference. But I'm not going to tell you what criteria to use. And then the machine finds its own criteria. Uh, and sometimes the people programming them go, I don't actually, I can see the conclusions it got to, but I don't actually know how it got there. I wanted to ask you about the D. Can you give us some examples of unusual combinations of dimensions that you encountered? I mean, it's almost that's the normal way of doing things now. So I, so I talked about the, the brain science one, which I think is is lovely because all of those different data sets were not collected for that reason. But in fact, there's there's a lot of times now where you collect data for one reason, then you put it together with something else and can find out something else. I mean, there's, there's quite a fun example. When I was writing the book, I talked to a, a company called Black Swan. That's really their main thing is they get different sources of data and put them together different ways, go, what can we learn? And they worked with a supermarket chain. Uh, they weren't allowed to tell me which one. The supermarket chain wanted to predict... I mean, obviously this year has been very weird, but most years there's one weekend in the spring where loads of people all suddenly get up and go, oh, we're going to have a barbecue this weekend. And and it tends to happen on the same weekend. So for a supermarket chain, that's really big because, you know, they need to have the stuff in stock. They need to have the the buns and the sausages and the I don't know, vegan burgers and the and the charcoal in stock so that when suddenly everybody decides this is the weekend and descends on the supermarket, they have it ready. And there's obviously there's a certain amount of you can look back and see when did it happen last year and the year before, and you can look at the weather forecasts and see, you know, is it is it going to be warm? Is it going to be rainy? But there are other little clues that they found they could use. So they could look at social media and there were certain words that signaled that we were all starting to think about having a barbecue. And then there were things like, it didn't really matter how warm the weather was. It was more about the change. It was more like if it had been really cold and then suddenly it started getting warmer, then it's almost like when little bulbs under the ground started to sprout. You go, oh, it's barbecue time. And so they said they were able to... (laughs) To, to get this weekend right most of the time for this supermarket chain, which you can imagine. I mean, for us, it's obviously a small disaster if you go to the supermarket and there's no sausages left. But for a supermarket chain, you could be talking millions of yeah, pounds. Yeah, huge economic difference. Yeah. I love all that supermarket analysis. And I know it didn't come from Black Swan, but the people who realise that people buy beer and nappies together between 5 and 7 p.m. I know. I know. Isn't that brilliant? But that's why? Like, I don't... <laughs> I don't know. I mean, this is, but this is the thing, you see, that half of me goes, this is really clever data analysis. And the other half goes, what's the story here? What's the, what's like, what's the human thing that's going on? Is it like the new parents and they're staggering around the supermarket in a sleep deprived days going, okay, I need nappies, but I really need beer. I really need beer to get me through the next week. Or, 
I don't know. I I would love to know. It's yeah. that's that's where I kind of want to go and find yeah. the people, follow them around the supermarket and go, why? Why beer and nappies? Yeah, tell but me maybe... your reasons. You know, who are yeah. you caring for everyone in this household? And are these your top two priorities? And then did anyone ever actually put the beer and nappies together on the basis of this intelligence? Or did that nobody get that far? I think they did, actually. But but then again, see so we've already touched on like a couple of things that data can't do. So data can tell us that a lot of people do buy beer and nappies together, but it can't tell us why. And also it can't really tell you what you should do about it because you might think, OK, well, we're a supermarket. If we put the beer near the nappies, we will just sell a lot more beer because it turns out all these people buying nappies really want beer. <laughs> or we could go, well, look, they're going to buy beer and they're going to buy nappies. And that's those are their two priorities. So if we put the nappies at one end of the shop and the beer at the other end of the shop, then they will go the whole length of the shop to get both. And then along the way, they might buy some other stuff. More purchases. Yeah. I, although, I mean, I guess then you get that kind of circular thing you can do where you go, OK, well, we've got a hypothesis, which is if we put it at the other end, then people will buy more stuff as they go along. So we'll test the hypothesis. Like in half the shops, we'll put it at the opposite end. And the other half of the shop, we'll put them side by side. And let's see from the data, let's see what the difference is. And then we can decide what's best to do. Now, that would have been fascinating experiment to do. Yeah. Well, they might have done it. I mean, this is, this is the tantalising thing that a lot of the use that's made of big data is commercial. And so you never know because... You know, partly because they want to keep it secret from their competitors, but also partly because we are not you know, particles and we're not animals. And so if we know something, we often change our behaviour. So if we knew that the supermarkets were deliberately putting the beer by the nappies, then we might go, oh, hang on, you're just trying to get me to drink more beer. I'm not going to do it because we're kind of awkward that way. Yeah, but if you think you're being manipulated, it might make you actually not go ahead with the transaction. Exactly. Yeah. So you went all over the place. You flew to Silicon Valley. You interviewed so many fascinating people who were doing different things in the research for your book. Did you find out anything that really surprised you? I mean, I was in a way I was surprised that the people who were most kind of like oh big data is amazing it's going to change everything it's the oracle were not necessarily the people who were actually doing it that in most cases the people who were like writing the programs and actually making it work were a little bit more measured about what they thought it could do they were like oh, okay you could do this and it's actually working pretty well and it can do this but what it can't do is that and so they they were kind of not so victim to the hype, if you like, as the people who were maybe a couple of steps removed who were going, well, this is amazing, or this will just give us the answers to all our questions. But there was one example that I was really blown away by, which was the guy I spoke to in Southern California, uh, Professor Eamon, Eamon Keogh, who was using big data to understand insects and he had a he had a global insect database using lego and lasers and big data and, <laughs> and so his lab was literally like there was a sign on the wall saying mosquito how to identify mosquitoes there were actual mosquitoes in little cages uh there was lego 
there were these incredibly bright uh, postgraduate uh, researchers sitting at their computers who had all just come back from summer holiday placements with everyone in Silicon Valley. And, and then he had these, these little laser light gates where basically you shine a laser at a, a photodiode and it sets off an electrical signal. And then if something interrupts the lasers, then it, that interrupts the signal, so you get a different signal. And he was using this to identify insects. And so he used, he built the little traps out of Lego he, with the, the little light gate and the insect would fly through and the pattern of the insect wings beating as it flew through generated enough data that once he'd collected enough of it, and he did say himself, he said millions of data points. So that was a case where just the, how much data you have made a difference. He was able to use that to identify not only the species of the insect, and there are, there are something like 59 different species of mosquito. Actually, it's probably more than that. It's probably hundreds. That's, that's the number I haven't remembered. It's in the book somewhere. Uh, but anyway, so, they, so the, his database could identify the species of mosquito and what sex the mosquito was, which matters because the male is not going to bite you. Male mosquitoes just eat fruit. It's the females that come and bite you, give you malaria, dengue, all the nasty stuff. Could even identify whether this one had already bitten somebody and had dinner. So you could build these little traps and go, we just want to trap the females that have bitten somebody so that we can then see if they are carrying the illness and then we can predict how the illness is going to flow. And that, that was really amazing to me because just the... The practical application of such an ambitious idea and and he really saw the potential he said you know look we lose a lot of crops to insects so it's really useful to be able to predict if you know, crop eating insects are on the way but they also spread diseases so it's really useful to be able to know what insects are there what diseases they're carrying and because he'd worked out this way of making these little cheap plastic traps with these little detectors that could send just use a mobile phone chip and send the signal back to his database you know you could potentially see even quite underdeveloped countries and say oh this disease is spreading across here and so we need to be ready for it that was I was really that was like yes this is exactly the kind of thing we should be using it for so it's such an innovative application you just yeah you couldn't imagine that such a thing could could exist until someone builds it out of Lego and you see it with your own eyes. Amazing. And and so in the three years since your updated edition was published, has anything changed? Has anything big changed in big data? Because our attitudes do seem to change quite a lot. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that is one big thing that when I first wrote it, uh, and I was saying things like, we really need to think about our privacy because things that seem very innocuous because of this ability to put different things together can actually reveal quite a lot about us. I mean, for example, you can have a lot of very anonymous data about you, but the particular combination of anonymous things about you is probably unique to you. So you only need maybe three or four different kinds of information, like where your mobile phone is, for example, uh, what what journeys you make on public transport, what credit card transactions you make. Uh, Probably you only need three or four of that kind of thing. And the pattern becomes very unique to you, Julia. 
And so somebody could put it together and go, well, actually, she is the only person in that postcode who has these characteristics. And so we can re-identify her. And so I think things like that and things like the way, not as individuals particularly, but as populations or subpopulations, we are nudged. I mean, manipulated, I think, is a tricky word because that suggests that we are completely passive and we just do whatever we're you know, supposed to do. And I think, yeah, that's pretty clear that we don't. <laughs> we're, a, we're an awkward species and we don't always do what we're told. But, but certainly nudged and like gently guided towards things or just have certain options quietly removed from our menus. And I, and I think when I started writing about that, a lot of people were quite surprised. They hadn't really thought it was happening that much. And I think now people are much more aware of it and, and do worry. And people come to me and go, oh, should I, you know, should I download the COVID contact tracing app because I'm worried about my privacy? And, and I, think, I think people are a bit more concerned. And, and the GDPR law, of course, has come in, which gives you certain rights in, the, in Europe gives you certain rights to know what data people have and to get it corrected and so on. So I think that has changed a bit. And it's a, it's a tricky double-edged sword in a way, isn't it? Because we want to feel like there could be a back-end built into encrypted conversations so that, you know, if someone's plotting something terrible, uh, someone might be able to find out about it in time. But on the other hand, we want to feel that we can converse in private and that's got to be quite a hard it's got to be quite hard to find a happy medium there yeah it is it is really tricky I mean I think your specific example is on the one hand you could just look technically and say it's either encrypted or it's not encrypted and if you put in a back door then it's not encrypted yeah. essentially because anybody Anyone. Any, so you know it's it's all very well to say oh we, we want the security services to use the back door it's like mm. but if you put in a back door <laughs> hackers can also use it and fraudsters and it's like it's just not secure anymore uh so so which is not to say that the security services do not have technological ways that they can know what happens in private conversations because they have other means uh <laughs> and if if you actually talk to people who work in that area they will say the encryption stuff is such a red herring because we do not need to break encryption to know what people are communicating if we know if we know who it is that we want to target we have other ways of knowing there you go what they are what they are communicating so we don't particularly need encryption broken uh, and there's all sorts of downsides if you do because we have other ways now obviously they're not going to talk about what the other ways are no <laughs> because the whole point is that you know, you uh then then the people that you're trying to listen on are no but i think the bigger point that you're making is there are circumstances where you actually want you know you want the security services to know if someone's planning a big terror attack of course uh, you you know you probably want the police to be able to investigate criminals, including cyber criminals. So you want that ability, but at the same time you want the expectation that we have of our privacy 
to be protected. So, so it becomes, for me anyway, it becomes a matter of how do you regulate what is permitted and who is permitted to do it for what purpose? And then how do you, how do you supervise that and follow it up? How do you make sure that those agreed limits are being adhered to? And obviously, again, there comes a point where the security services are saying, well, we can't discuss all this in Parliament because then exactly the people that we're trying to protect you from will know what we're doing. But somebody needs to be there saying, look, we have agreed these limits. We have agreed, for example, that the police can download the contents of your mobile phone to use an investigation. But but to my mind, see, that at the moment is very unregulated and whether you're a a suspect or even sometimes uh, a possible victim the police basically go oh can we just download everything off your mobile phone Uh, and sometimes they don't even ask and I think well hang on it's like there's more to be honest there's more private stuff in my mobile phone than in my house and you couldn't just walk into my house without a warrant and look at everything so why should you be able to do that with my phone? You know, you, there should be a system where you actually have, sorry, you actually have to get a warrant if you want to look at everything with my phone. And then you also have to say, we only these people will look at it, we'll only keep it this long, then we destroy it. And at the moment, that's, that's all a bit loose. So for me, I think the technology exists. Somebody's going to use it. But if we want law enforcement to use it, there should be regulations and and there should be people who actually practically are equipped to go and follow up and say well what did you do was this within the rules no it wasn't why did you do it so we need more regulation around it so interesting now talking about you mentioned the covid app um to what extent has big data helped in the search for a vaccine or just in the fight against covid generally Oh, yeah, no, a lot, a lot, definitely. I mean, yeah, I think most modern pharmaceuticals now rely massively on on big data and and because so much of it is is a trial and error thing and big data can just speed that up enormously. If you've got, if you look at COVID, you go, well, there's, I don't know, I mean, I don't even know, there's probably a million possible different molecules that you could use that would fight it, but we don't know which one is the right one. Then big data can run those you know it can run theoretical things through very quickly uh, or you can analyze tests and trials very quickly so yeah we would never be anywhere near getting a vaccine now without big data techniques but also in more broadly in i mean i know the contact tracing apps are not working brilliantly and that is partly because you know partly just technical issues but partly because not a lot of us are consistently using Yeah, you, you need compliance, don't you? I'm probably quite yeah. a... Yeah, yeah, you need a lot of people to have it and to remember to turn it on and have it working. I'm terribly ostentatious time. about it. I sort of wave my app like firmly at the person who's <laughs> asked me to do it and make sure it's very clear that I'm doing it <laughs> and then realise I can't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm actually, I'm quite impressed the whole the whole scanning into venues thing. The... Uh, I must admit, I keep I do I have downloaded it because even though I'm quite protective of my own privacy, the way they ended up doing the app, which is a whole saga, which I won't bore you with now, but the way they ended up doing it means that it is actually very anonymous, and and again, you know, although in principle, if someone really wanted to work out which which app and which phone was you, 
could, but that's really not the point of it at all. The point of it is that only you have the data on where you've been and who you've been near until you choose to upload it to the central database. And then, you know, if the app contacts you and says, oh, actually, you've been near someone, only you know that. Um, the central database knows that somebody has, but it doesn't know it's you. So it's actually, if you are worried about your privacy, it's actually quite a good way to keep track of who you've been near. But, but yeah, I, I, I keep forgetting to turn it on. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's like... Well, you have to charge really. your phone for a start. You know, there's all sorts of hurdles to the process. Um, well, it's, yeah, I mean, they've made it quite user-friendly. <laughs> I mean, but the other thing, of course, is I had COVID in March. So I know the official line is you can catch it again. But I looked at the figures. I went, yeah, there's like a one in two million chance of catching it again. And that's about half my chance of getting struck by lightning in the next year. So... It's not something I'm going to worry about, to be honest. And you, you talk very eloquently, actually, about how, instead of just being terribly afraid of the sort of blanket threat of COVID, to view it in these kind of probability terms, as you just have, and actually say, we need to take the agency back onto ourselves and say, look, I, I shall be brave and practical and look at what the risks are and carry on with, our, with my life. Yes, I, I do think that's something we, we're not very good at. And it's it's not only that we're not very good at the maths, although, yeah, the maths can be tricky and it can be quite counterintuitive. But it's also, I think, we've got a very unbalanced attitude to risk these days. I think we tend to see it as a kind of terrible existential threat that's looming over us rather than something that you face all the time in life and you have to weigh up you know what's what's my risk of crossing the road what's my risk of you know we're all meant to get on bicycles these days what's my risk of getting squashed if I go out on my bicycle uh is it worth is it worth that for the extra health benefits that I'll get so maybe my long-term health risk could be less but my immediate risk of getting squashed is more uh the way these things and then but then we all do this in a context where we go yeah but I actually enjoy something exactly everyone's prepared to take some risk um <laughs> exactly what's important to you and i i'm realizing more and more i think that's part of the problem that we're not sure what's important to us as a society mm. anymore and so we're not sure what we're taking the risks for and so we don't want to take them so safety just becomes which of course is madness because you cannot you cannot guarantee everybody's safety and we're all going to die of something eventually mm-hmm. and so we have this completely unrealistic yeah. expectation that we should be protected from all risks like well that's that's impossible and also i mean what would your life be you'd just stay indoors and never go out and never meet anybody and that would be awful <laughs> there's no 100% safe space and oddly enough i think this kind of dovetails in a way with um your series on disagreement because actually when you're when you put yourself up to have an argument with someone which is something i almost never do and um, you are actually you're taking a risk quite a lot of risks actually so i wanted to talk about that um seems at present there's just no no civil way to have a debate that doesn't kind of descend into outrage and, and name calling. Um, you think that we're not doing arguments right. What should we be doing? We should be listening to what the other person thinks and asking a lot more questions, I think, is, is the answer to that. It's, I'm, I'm glad you raised this, actually, because I'm currently making another series, which is a kind of follow-up to How to Disagree, 
which you'll get in January, which is called steel manning, which is like the opposite to straw manning. So you've probably heard of the idea of a straw man where you, 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 you describe the weakest arguments against you and then you argue against them and they go, there, you see, that proves I'm right. Which, of course, it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't convince anybody else because people who disagree with you go, well, that wasn't what I was saying anyway. <laughs> and you haven't tested your own ideas. So the steel manning is the kind of opposite to that where you actually find the strongest arguments against you and you listen to those and try and argue against them with the, with the idea that you've, you've kind of really... I mean, I suppose going back to the vaccine idea, the idea is that you don't want to give a lot of people a vaccine without testing it really hard. And so you test it in different kinds of people and you test it against the disease and, and, and only when you're sure that you've tested it against all these things are you going to put it out or a car you know you're going to you're not going to sell a new model of car without literally crash testing it and putting dummies in and running it to walls and seeing how well it survives and if it doesn't do very well then you you know you go back and you redesign it so it's kind of the idea is that you do that with your arguments you think okay well I think this and this is why but let's find the strongest arguments against me that I can because maybe I'm wrong I mean this, yeah. this is the thing yeah. I think Part of the point of arguments is to change other people's minds. But part of the point is to test whether you are in fact right, because maybe maybe you're not. Maybe there's stuff you haven't thought of. Maybe you're so attached to your position that you're blind to contradictions in it. There's this real... Um, I, I don't think I ever used to hear the phrase double down until quite recently. And now it seems that people don't have an argument unless they're also prepared to double down. Never backtrack or go, oh, wait, now I've actually had a look at the, the science or the research. I'm prepared to concede. It's always about doubling down after your first point. Is Twitter the wrong platform in general for a, a sensible argument? I think it is for arguments, actually. Uh, I like Twitter. I, I spend far too much time on Twitter. But what I find it's good for is really silly puns and <laughs> finding interesting people and finding interesting things to read. It's it's not a very good medium for having a discussion because it, you are basically throwing points at each other. Uh, and I think, yeah, I think social media is not ideal for having a, a, a reasoned debate because it makes it quite hard to properly listen and take someone else's ideas on board but at the same time I don't want to blame social media because I actually think another part of the problem is that we we tend to see our ideas and our opinions as an integral part of us so if someone disagrees with me it's it's like oh but they're attacking who I am like who I am is the person that believes this thing and therefore, if you are disagreeing with me or attacking me, and then I feel defensive and angry and emotional, and then I'm not, I'm not likely to listen and go, oh, I don't know, maybe you have a point. I am, I am just going to come out kind of metaphorical fists flying. And I think, I think that's what happens a lot, that we're finding it hard to separate what we think from a, a very kind of deep sense of, who we are and there's some there's some very odd research well I mean it's you know it's brilliant it's useful but there's some research around this that people are taking very personally 
political disagreements. So over the last few years, they did research in America saying, how would you feel if a child brought home their new fiancé or partner and said, oh, you know, mum, dad, I'm going to marry this person, but they are on the other political side. So, you know, you're a Democrat, they're a Republican. And a lot of people, like maybe 40%, 50% of people said, oh, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be happy with that at all. And and similar similarly here, not not quite as strong, but but then it kind of it attaches itself to different things. So over Brexit, people were starting to say, "Oh no, you know, I'm a Remainer, and I would not be happy if my child brought home someone who who had voted Leave and wanted to marry them." And and one one of the odd things is that the people who consider themselves on the more liberal side, so the Democrats in America or the or the Remain voters here, were actually more likely. To say no, no, I couldn't tolerate that. Have the more extreme views. So they, yeah, they were more likely to take it personally. Uh, whereas in parallel, you know, the good news is that because they've often done these surveys over years and years, it, it, if they ask people in the UK, you know, how would you feel about your child bringing home someone with a different race or religion to marry them? Most people now are perfectly happy with that. Very, very few people have a problem with that these days. So, yeah, so it's so it's become this matter of very personal, emotional attachment so you can see if, if you feel like that then it's going to be really hard for you to just sit down with somebody and say oh why do you think that oh well I disagree because of this yeah, because you re- what you need is that at the the Greek forum you need you know you need the nice pillars and air of calm <laughs> some birds overhead and everyone listening and talking and very slowly which to me is the opposite of most social media platforms. Um, I must ask you about Ada Lovelace, because uh, I realise I haven't. Yes. And you do feature Ada in yeah, in your book, Big Data. Um, now, I spent about a year reading all sorts of things about Ada. And I because I wrote my book, in, I, Ada, in the first person, um, I ended up subjecting quite a lot of my thought processes to this sort of what would Ada think filter um, or WWAT. Um, what do you think Ada would have made of big data? Would she have approved big data and the, and the way it's applied? What would she have thought? What well, think? I think she'd be thrilled to see that stuff that she imagined long before it was possible is actually happening. I mean, I, I think she would be really thrilled because that's what I thought was very remarkable about her is that she was literally writing in a time where a computer, I mean, they didn't even finish it, but it was, it was a a huge thing made of brass wheels. You could literally see the cogs turning. And yet she was already thinking, well, you could, you could give it programs where it would find stuff out that we'd never really thought of. uh, And that might give us new ideas. And would it come up with anything original? Well, it wouldn't, but, our process of having to put things in a form for the machine might might that that demand might make us think of new things and force us to think in a new way so really really visionary so far ahead of what was actually practically possible so no i i mean i think she'd be really excited and and probably again be thinking oh well go see if it can do this it can do that one of the nice things, I think, is that she also foresees the process where, on the one hand, you get really excited and go, oh, it's going to be able to do this and this and this, and it's going to be able to create, it's going to be able to create new original things, and it's going to be able to answer these questions. And then on the other hand, then you find out that actually it 
can't do everything because it's not actually an oracle. It's not magic. And then you get disappointed and go, oh, that's rubbish then. And I'm like, this is exactly the cycle, the, uh, yeah. the, the, the hype cycle where it's like, oh, oh, big data could do everything. It could answer all the questions. It'll, it'll make life perfect. We won't need to do anything for ourselves. Oh, turns out it's a bit, oh, <laughs> turns out it's a bit uh, inefficient and also quite unfair and reproduces all the biases from society and it's probably awful and we don't want it at all and now you know now we're coming back to that level off of oh actually no it's quite useful quite a lot of things but it can't do everything and she was like she even foresaw that it's extraordinary you think of this like 27 year old mother of three children just sitting in her sort of country estate like you know scrutinizing letters from charles babbage and actually predicting all of these things are gonna happen i know it's amazing she was it's really amazing it's so but she died very young didn't she 36 it's so tragic because you just imagine what she would have done if she'd yeah she'd been able to carry on longer you do my research stopped before this point but i think she got quite heavily involved in in some kind of gambling ring to do with predicting um horse racing wins just before she died um and uh, it makes me think she would have been thrilled by the idea of being able to use big data to help with her, her oh, sort really? of her gambling so she endeavors. Was a gambler. Yeah, just towards the end, I think she's spending a lot of money. But of course, her father spent a lot of money. So um, yes, yeah. well, just but she does really unite that because her mother was an amazing mathematician, wasn't she? And her father was a a reckless reprobate poet. So it's quite the the combination. Quite the combination. I yes. think that I think Ada could see what Babbage's machine could do in a way that Babbage could not see because she was able to unite the the different cognitive processes that she'd inherited from her two totally different parents and yet they were both present in in her I think so it is a reminder that we do need both don't we we need the very orderly detailed practical technological way of thinking especially in this day and age but we also need that capacity to make leaps of imagination and to take risks and to and to go, well, nobody's ever done this before, but let's try it. I did want to ask you quickly, just because I was so interested to see that you studied um, maths and statistics, but also film and drama, uh, for not, not in that order, probably the other way around. It was the other way around. And yeah, it's interesting because the science comedy, I was half of the first science comedy double act in the UK ages ago uh, with Dr Helen Pilcher who's a neuroscientist and and now there's a lot of people doing great work in in science and comedy and maths and comedy but most of them come the other way most of them start off with a very serious career doing maths or science or engineering whatever and then they discover that they're also funny and you know great presenters and so they go into that and I went completely the other way I started off doing studied film and theatre, I worked in theatres, I got sidetracked into circus, uh, I fell into doing comedy, uh, and then I just, I started doing comedy about science, because I was bored with doing same old, same old comedy that everybody was doing, about, you know, cats and dogs, differences between men and women, blah, all that, and, uh, and it's just science was, was just more interesting, it had all this much more a wider way of looking at the world if you like and then I remembered how much I'd loved maths at school and I went and so I went back with the Open University and did a started off just doing it for fun 
to sting and masturbate for fun. And then they kind of went, oh, well, because of the fees thing, you have to sign up to do it as a degree. And I'm like, oh, yeah, all right, okay. And then because I got interested in the big data stuff, the statistics became really relevant. So I'm like, actually, yeah, I'm going to take that branch within the maths with the statistics because it's actually, yeah, I wouldn't say, you know, hire me as your statistician to design your study but I can now read other people's studies and go, I'm not sure that shows that actually. <laughs> I've just, I've got about that much knowledge. So I'm like, oh, it doesn't, doesn't really show that. Uh, or it does show it, but uh, yeah. So I kind of went that way. I went from performing and writing and then thought, I'd actually, I would like a bit more substance this so that I, I understand it a bit better and know what I'm talking about. And those two disciplines actually you know they go together really well it's a, it's a nice combination i think uh, you mentioned steel manning but uh, have you got any other projects coming up um that you'd like to tell us about uh well i'm hoping to write another book I, I need to kind of get myself together on that which will be partly about the ideas of big data and technology but also taking maybe a bit of a wider view about why we have the technology we have and what we're looking for from it um and yeah it's so that and then I've, and the steel mining series in january and hoping to do some more radio projects that are, are kind of yeah basically the way radio works is you have an idea and then you and then you pitch it and go hey why don't you let me do this and they go away and think about it for ages and then they come back and go okay we don't want that one and we don't want that one but we'll have that one but we don't need it for a year oh so, it, it's, um, <laughs> so you need to you need to throw lots of ideas at them basically and you yeah and you need to think what what are people going to want to listen to in a year's time which of course is quite tricky at the moment because yeah who knows what's happening in the world who knows exactly now we have a question here um an anonymous question um could you talk at all about the use of data in elections um it seems that in the 2016 american election lots has been made about the use of data and potential interference now yes thank you for asking that because i am actually really interested in this topic and i've looked into it quite a lot i mean the, the 2016 american election the big phrase was cambridge analytica which is this little research company that went to uh actually went to ted cruz first and then on to donald trump and said we can use data and psychometrics to help you win this election by working out which ele- well it's, it's a three-stage process first of all you work out which people you want to target so those are the key people who either you need to sway them either they're undecided and you want to convince them to vote for you or they do basically support you but you want to give them the push to get them out and vote or you know, more controversially they're going to vote for the other person and you want to discourage them so they don't bother to go and vote so that's the first way you you identify who it is you want to uh, influence you work out basically what makes them tick what what they respond to and then you target them with your with your targeted adverts or messages but then because it's digital because we're talking about online adverts and adverts through social media sites you can actually get the data back the other way so you can immediately see who watches this little video right to the end who then clicks on the link uh so you can you're basically testing stuff all the time you're going well we put this ad out this ad out and this ad gets a better response so we'll keep running this one and this one gets a better response but only with these people so we'll just 
those people get that, those people get that. So that was basically what they did. They had the particular thing that they claimed that they could basically psychologically know your personality type. And so they could psychologically target you. So if you're an anxious person, they would maybe talk about protecting your family. Or if you were a person who was open to new and novel things, maybe you'd say, oh, we're going to invest in science. I don't know. Those are off the top of my head. They certainly, you know, they, they did work for Trump. But then remember, they worked for Cruz before Trump and he lost the primaries. So it's not about it. That, in my mind, there's, there's two things happening here. One is that pretty much everything they did was not new. And if you go back a little bit further, you go back to Obama's two successful campaigns. He was using exactly the same techniques. And lots of the people that worked for him are completely open about this. They're very proud of what they did, how successful it was. There are publications you can read where they spell out those three stages. They explain how you, you do the testing and you run the adverts that work and you stop running the adverts that don't work, uh, that you break down the electorates into different types by what they're interested in. And all this, of course, is, is the same stuff that happens with any kind of online advert. It, you know, when, when you get your adverts for slippers or whatever, that exactly the same thing has happened. You've been profiled by your data and your online behaviour, and so you're targeted. So political parties using this. All the political parties here in the UK also use exactly the same methods, exactly the same. It's, a bit, it's getting a bit more transparent now, and interestingly, Facebook have a directory of political ads, so in the last election, 2019 election, I went and looked at all the different parties are targeting their adverts at particular kinds of people. They're running small batches of adverts to test them, to see what the effect is. The, the Tories, for example, ran two slightly different versions of a Get Brexit Done advert. Uh, and all the men just saw one that said, you know, end the, well, the chaos in Parliament, whatever. Uh, get Brexit Done. And there was just a hashtag, Get Brexit Done. And then the ones targeted to women were the same. It was like, get Brexit done so we can spend the money on our NHS schools and, uh, uh, and police or something. So they'd obviously decided that for the women, they were going to respond better to this extra message. So all the political parties do it. All political campaigns have done it since at least what, 2008. So it's not a new method. Uh, the fact that Cambridge Analytica claimed they could psychologically profile you is mostly snake oil, to be honest. You can you can go online. They they basically they nicked the idea and some of the research from a perfectly respectable academic branch of Cambridge University called the Cambridge Psychometric Centre, which does research into this. And they they have a program which you can run on your own social media feed to see how it profiles you and what it thinks about you. And then you can compare that. You can do a standard psychological test and compare the results. So I did that. And it's called, if you want to try it yourself, you go online. It's called applymagicsource.com. And you, and you put it in, you can, you can do this quite fun. And so I ran it, I ran my Twitter feed through it and it said I was 30 and male. And, and a bunch of other stuff I like, right, so... I don't think this is going to magically win an election for anybody, this, this kind of technology. Um, so I think, on the one hand, I think it's overblown. And I think, I think trying to explain political results by saying it's some amazing, clever technological thing is, well, I think it's a cop-out. I mean, mm. it's basically yeah. saying, 
Well, maybe if you lost that vote, maybe you didn't convince people. Yeah. Maybe, maybe you need to go make a better argument. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing is, but the other thing is, I do think it's bad. I think it's a bad thing because it does treat politics like selling slippers. You know, instead of instead of a political party coming out and going, we have a vision and this is our vision, and we want to convince you the whole of Britain or America or whatever, that our vision is better. They are just going, okay, well, you know, you, Julia, perhaps you're most worried about the price of beer or nappies, yeah. so we're going to target you with adverts saying under labour, nappies would be more expensive, um, and you, Tamandra, may be more concerned about motorcycling, so we're going to say, you know, under labour, motorcycles would be banned. <laughs> Obviously, I'm making all this up. This is not actually thing. Uh, and so... Yeah, it's just reducing it to sales technique. And I think that's really bad. So mm. I think it's really bad, but you can't just blame votes that mm. you don't like Yeah, on online marketing techniques. Thank you so incredibly much for being my guest on, on oh, the radio. It's been a pleasure. It's been a joy. I hope to meet you one day. IRL. I know, <laughs> in 3D. In 3D, it would be so <laughs> nice. And, um, and to the Richmond Literature Festival... Thank you so much for facilitating this. It's been lovely. You've been listening to On The Radar, conversations with extraordinary women in science. On The Radar was produced by Jonathan Moore and me, Julia Gray, and mixed and edited by Jonathan Moore. And with special thanks to Paul Black, Rob Farramond, Chloe Sacker, Louise Lamont, Leo Johnson, and today's guest, Tamandra Harkness. Music by Second Person. I, Ada is published by Anderson Press and available wherever you buy your books. <laughs> <laughs>